want to take our Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3 as we continue to move through this book. Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going to be reading verse 22 to verse chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 3, I'm, I'm going to change that. I'm going to go start with verse 18. Chapter 3, verse 18 through uh, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the, of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we come to your word, we pray, Lord, that you would just show us from the word of God how do you want us to live every day on the jobs that we have with the employees that we should be and the employers that we are under? And I pray, Lord, as we consider these things, that we would always re realize that whatever we do, whatever person is ahead of us or has authority over us, you have over authority over them, and we actually serve you no matter what we're doing. I pray that would always be on our mind. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. So this Lord's Day, the next set of verses that I just read have to do with how the spirit-filled, word-filled Christian works. In other words, the imperative for transformed workplaces I think you can see the transformative power of the gospel in each part of a believer's experience as they walk in the spirit. As the believer grows in the knowledge of the word and of Christ and is led by the spirit of God, transformation takes place in marriages between wives and husbands, in families between children and parents, and of course in families between fathers and children. Today, though, we will see the transformation of the gospel in the workplace. But before I look at the text today, let me remind you of the principle. And we have to deal with the principle that the apostle has laid down for us in Scripture so far. That is, a Christian is to lay aside his sin, put on the clothing of Christ... And let the peace of God rule in their heart and the word of Christ make its home in the sinner's and the saved sinner's innermost being. That is the principle. And then once that principle is understood and realized, then the practice of the outworking of that truth is noticed in a change in all believers, especially in an obedient and a submissive heart. As the parallel passage uh, in Ephesians, it records it like this. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So submitting means to line oneself up under someone else. And it has the idea of giving up one's own rights or will, doing it voluntarily. And why do we do that? 
Well, again, in the Ephesian passage and in the Colossian passage in chapter 3, verse 22, it says really the same thing uh, at the end of the verse in verse 22 of Colossians 3. It says, fearing the Lord. So the fear of Christ, the fear of the Lord, that everything the Christian does is to be in the fear of Christ. Now, this is not a horrifying fear. We had, as, as slaves to sin, under a father who lied to us and kept us under the extreme fear of death, which was Satan. Our passage is pointing us to a healthy fear, a fear of God, which we ought to have. The Bible teaches we ought to have it. And this fear is not a fear of a slave nor merely a fear of a creature to the creator, but a reverential fear of an obedient child to a loving master. Yet, at the same time, not taking the master lightly or with indifference. So Christian reverence rests upon the knowledge of God's holy character also of God's plan of redemption. A passage of scripture that brings, actually brings fear and holiness together, it's found in Corinthians where it says, therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of Christ. So the fear of God is, has everything to do with what we do every day. The thing that marks off the Christian from the man who is not a Christian is not merely that he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and to salvation and trusts him and his atoning work. He believes that, yes. But in addition, the life of a Christian is governed by Jesus Christ. That Jesus is Lord and Master at all times and in all areas of our life. So that means the Christian desires to please him. Their Lord, they desire to please their Lord, and at the same time, the believer desires not to disappoint him or grieve him or hurt the one they love and submit to. So we must, from time to time, ask ourselves, are we disappointing Christ today? Wives, if we just look at the passage, wives, are you disappointing Christ by not submitting to your husband like you ought to? Husbands, are you not loving your wives as you ought to and disappointing Christ there? Children, are you being obedient to parents with the proper action and attitude, or are you disobeying the Lord there and disappointing him? Fathers, are you leading your family by taking the spiritual lead and treating your children Proper, not causing them to be angry or exasperated by your discipline and your family model. Are you displeasing the Lord there? So all these areas of our life will bear the greatest tensions and stresses and strains. So if you're going to see the word of God prevailing in your heart and the spirit of God leading you in your life, this is where you'll see it. You'll see it in these areas here because these are the areas that we deal with the most every day. This is in and out living, right? It is, in a sense, a testing ground of how we are progressing in the Christian faith. But this next area that we're looking at from verse 22, where it says they're slaves. If you notice, it says slaves there in 22. This area could be the most demeaning, distasteful, lowliest of all that a being can be in, a Christian can be in, in their position in this world. Relationships between slave and master, or we have to make something that is comparable to that, and that would be employee to, uh, employer to employee, employee to employer. 
So notice again in verse 22, slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. So slaves are, is really one uh, who serves in obedience to another's will. It's a performing the service of a slave with unquestioning obedience, either good or bad, in a, either in a good or bad sense. In any place, a believer is to find themselves with the conduct that they ought to have in that situation, no matter what the uh, circumstances would be. So really, Paul is dealing with the, the worst circumstances, the lowest place a human being could be, is in a place where they are subservient to everything. They own nothing. And I want, you to, I want to note, though, first century slavery was not identical to what slaves faced in the early centuries of the settling of North Africa. There's no, there is also a difference between first century slavery and modern, uh, the modern employee. However, the basic principle of labor and one's attitude about labor is transferable to those who make up today's workforce and to whatever situation a person may be in. So it is about our inner heart. It's about our racial relationship to the Lord as the master of our life and that how are we to respond to that. So the apostle Paul's concern is not to overthrow the societal structure that one finds themselves, but he's concerned about the salvation and the sanctification of individuals and the progress of the gospel and the visible transformation of those who have Christ as their master. They should be different, shouldn't they? Than the general population, whatever circumstance they may be in. His concern is to be Christ-like in your behavior to the true master, Jesus Christ. If you notice in verse number 22 and verse number 23 and 24, notice what it says, these little phrases, slaves fearing the Lord, verse 23, as for the Lord, verse 24, from the Lord, and verse 24 again, the Lord Christ whom you serve, chapter 4, verse 1, masters, you too have a master in heaven. See, all these things are the believer is focused in on the Lord Jesus Christ. So the principle in Colossians 3.22, slaves in all things obey, and then Ephesians, slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. So you're going to have earthly masters, but you have one heavenly master. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are responsible as believers to the heavenly master. But how we respond to the earthly master will tell how we're doing. So the principle is obvious. The Christian is to conform to the circumstances and conditions in which they find themselves. He is not automatically to break loose or to break free because he has become a Christian. There will always be differences in social status, even though all believers are in Christ. And never does Christ or the Apostle Paul tell anyone to change his social standing just because they're converted. In fact, the Bible instructions are just the opposite. Again, just take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 20, because th this passage of Scripture does lay out some principles here. 1 Corinthians 7, 20 to verse 22, it says this. It's, it's a very informative passage on the principle. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 20, it says this. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. That means called to be a believer there. Verse 21 were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able to become free, rather than do that, rather do that. Verse 22, it says, for he who, he, 
For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he, was, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. So in other words, if you, a person was under this position in the first century as a slave, right, and they became a believer, they were actually free as a slave in their heart to the Lord. But if they were called as a free person, they now become a slave to Christ. So just remember, this is not the slavery of modern history. In Paul's time, servants really were bond slaves who could not call their life their own. And this is what, it, what is meant when Christ took upon himself the form of a bondservant. It tells us in Philippians, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So our Lord made himself a slave so that we can be free from the slavery of sin and its condemnation, which we read in our passage this morning. So if the characteristic of a bond slave is contrasted with Christ taking the form of a bond servant, then we, we really are called to be this bond slave. For a bond slave had no rights as a citizen. Christ laid aside his glory in the presence of God to, become, to come into this world who hated him. A bond slave had, <laughs> excuse me, had no redress in injury. Christ opened not his mouth before his, his accusers and murderers. A bond slave had no property. Christ had no place to lay his head and was the poorest of men. A bond slave could be sold. Christ was sold for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. A bond slave could be tortured and killed. Christ suffered for us. He was beaten and publicly humiliated and killed, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. So Jesus was the greatest example of what it, mean, what it meant to be under slavery, but a willing slave. He willingly did that. And what was the apostle Paul's view of being a slave? Well, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. This is what Paul said. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Saul was a rebel of a man and persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. But once the gospel arrested Paul, he became a willing, obedient bondslave of Jesus. And where did this whole concept of bond slave come from? Well, it actually comes from the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 21, verse 1 through 6. You should turn there because it's an interesting passage. It says in that passage of Scripture <coughs> something that relates to what I am saving, saying here. In Exodus 21, verse number 1, it says, Now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them if you buy a Hebrew slave. He shall serve for six years, but on the seventh, <coughs> he shall go out as a free man without payment. Verse 3, if he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. Verse 4 of Exodus 21 if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and the children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. But notice verse 5. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an owl, and he shall serve him permanently. So this is a person who willingly says, I will be under the authority of this person permanently. And so he had the mark of a pierced ear 
for that purpose. So everyone who saw him knew right away that he was a willing bondservant. Well, you know, when you come to the New Testament, but isn't that really what happens to all real Christians? Even though we don't have literal pierced ears, now some people do, but it's a different situation. That's to betray your jewelry. But here, we, we move from being slaves to sin to being slaves to righteousness because we are now enslaved to God who is our good and loving master. That's exactly what we read this morning in Romans where it says in verse number 22 of Romans 6, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. So Christians have a master in heaven they are to please. The apostle Paul chose to have his ear pierced as a gesture of his permanent surrender to Jesus Christ, his master, where it says in Galatians 6, 17, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, Paul said, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. That's the words stigma. It could mean tattoo mark. It could be brand mark. Right, And the brand mark for a slave was a pierced ear. In fact, the only people who are branded are slaves. Paul bore willingly the slave brands of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, back to Colossians, who's the founder of the Colossian church? A papyrus, right? Well, what does it say about him in Colossians? In Colossians 4.12, it says... A papyrus who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. So everywhere you look in Scripture, you, you have this phrase that when you become a believer, you are actually a slave to Jesus Christ. But remember, Jesus is a good master. He is a kind master. He is a master that you want to have. So... If you consider yourself this morning a bond slave of Jesus Christ because you have come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and confessed him before others and have walked in the waters of baptism in obedience to him and now you desire every day to live for him, no matter where you find yourselves on this earthly level, we are to have a certain behavior and demeanor on our jobs. And there are four things connected to being a transformed employee under one major imperative. And here's the major imperative found in verse number 22. It says, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So the, the imperative is submissive obedience, willing obedience. It's the same word that's used for children to obey your parents. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. I like how he stresses that, on earth. Because the primary teaching for the Christian is that his conduct and character are to be obedient. And it's to be obedience within the system in which he lives. Even though it may at times involve doing things in which himself or herself would not choose to do. It's a place you would not choose to be. Employees are to be obedient, but not with eye service or not with external service as those who merely please men. That means you work or look like you are working when the boss, boss's eye is upon you and do only service when you can be seen. When the master and the boss is absent, not watching, the slave, the employee's slothful. Do you know anybody like that? 
If you're in, in any workforce, you know people like that, right? It doesn't make things easy when that person doesn't pull their weight for other people. So in other words, the Christian employee must not merely do the minimum just enough to keep themselves out of trouble. They are to do the maximum. So there is a type of employee or slash slave that whatever they are doing, their eye is on the master Jesus Christ with whom they desire to please. There is another... If the boss is watching, he works hard and shows himself a very dutiful person. But as soon as the boss is gone, he does nothing but the bare minimum. The person does not have to This person doesn't have his heart on his work or in his work. And this attitude really is completely unsuited to what is truly the Christian attitude. So then, what is the Christian employee to do? Especially when the job is less than favorable and the boss inconsiderate with his employees. Well, the Christian employee is to be obedient to the boss, work hard, and give a day's work regardless of the conditions and also the pay. The Christian employee does this because he is working for the Lord as a God-fearer. So some people ask, well, how can I serve the Lord? You can serve the Lord right where you work by having that attitude. See, God-fearers reverence God to the point they care deeply about what he says and desires to submit to his authority. And his part of his authority is he's placed placed you where he's at. If we believe in the sovereignty of God, it's no mistake where you're at right now. No mistake at all. So you can kick at that all you want. That's not the way to deal with it. We have a fear of, of God that encompasses reverence and submission to his and, and awe of the Lord. I like how the apostle Peter put it, servants, he said, be submissive to your masters in all respects, not only those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. That's to be like Christ. So the first thing that's connected to a transformed employee is that bond slaves of Christ should do their work with obedience. The second one is this, found in verse 23 of Colossians 3. Second one is bond slaves of Christ should do their work from a single and sincere heart. It says that in verse 22, but in verse number 23 it says, whatever you do, do your work heartily. For who? For my boss? No, as for the Lord, rather than for men. So a Christian is to work hard within any system they live because they are working as a willing slave of Jesus Christ. Singleness of heart means that you do what you have to do with undivided attention. And a sincere heart means the motive should be to do the best work possible and the best way possible because we are Christians and we want to please the master. Actually, that's how we witness to our bosses. That's how we are a good example to the employees around us. We work hard, and we go above and beyond. And that means for the employee, our time, the, the employee's time is not their own. It's the bosses, the masters. His money, property, equipment, supplies are not his. They're the company's. We have no right to use our employees' time even to evangelize on company time. Now your lunchtime may be a time you can talk to people when they find you coming into the lunchroom reading your Bible. They say, oh, what's that? And that's opportunity to have a conversation, right? Let them see it. 
But you know what? Sometimes when you're on your phone, they don't know you're reading your Bible. You got to bring your Bible. Bring the old big old paper Bible, right? Lay that on the lunch desk and read it, right? And they're going to say, whoa, what's that? And then you can start saying, witnessing to them. We're not to do our work grudgingly. Some jobs are not very pleasant. They can be dirty and smelly and just plain tedious. And you're wondering, Lord, why am I here? But the Lord has you there. Because you know what? You can witness the people that I can't or the person sitting next to you can't. You're there to witness. You're there to be an example. You have to consider your life like that. Wherever I am, God wants me there. And if you're going to be grumbling and complaining and whining and complaining about your boss and your job, you're not being an example. I mean, that's the bottom line. And we all have jobs that we didn't like, all of us, at some point in our life. I had a job one summer on a hot dog wagon on the side of a road. You know those kind of wagons? A little stinking little hot dog wagon. But anyway, it was our job to, you know, sell hot dogs. And I said, okay, we can do this. Maybe make some money at doing this. And uh, we ate more hot dogs than we sold. <laughs> of course, I wasn't a believer back then, and it, it didn't turn out very well, and we gave that up quick. But uh, it was an experience. It was an experience back then. And so we've all had times like that and jobs like that. And as Christians, you can thank God for your job and glorify him by working to the best of your ability and dedicating your work to him. Colossians 3.17, what did that say up there? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So you want people to say to you, why are you always thankful? Why are, why are you a person who kind of always has a good attitude? You're annoying me. <laughs> but isn't that what you want them to say? Because that is, again, all these are open doors for the gospel, all of them. Because you're just not like everybody else. That's how we adorn the gospel. You know what Titus said about this? This is what Titus said. Listen to this passage. Don't turn there. Just listen. You can turn there. It's Titus 2, 9 and 10. Titus chapter 2, verse 9. But listen to what he says. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering or stealing, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. That's what we're to do as Christians. It changes our whole outlook on the work that God's given to us. There's a third thing that's connected to this major imperative, and it's in, found in verse number 24, but it's more on the positive sense. Slaves of Christ have an inheritance. Now you say, to, wait a minute, slaves don't have any inheritance? Neither are they in a place to receive any inheritance. That's true. Unless you are Christ's slave. Notice what it says in verse 24 of chapter 3 of Colossians. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. See, it is the inheritance that believers will receive That will be the nature of the reward, a fair re recompense from a faithful service to the Lord. That the slave of Christ has an unceasing line of thought. And that means this, that they look past the earthly life and look, they look beyond their earthly life and their immediate circumstances to the Lord and the reward that he has for them. Galatians tells us this in chapter 4, verse 7, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then heir through God. You say, I'm a slave, I own nothing. No, if you're a Christian slave, you own everything. 
you're the richest person on earth because you're connected to Christ. Oh, we don't have everything yet. We don't have experienced everything yet. But Lord, the Lord, the scripture is saying, lift up your eyes and look beyond the, this life to a life that's coming. And it's not the first time we are introduced to the thought uh, of an inheritance in, Col- in Colossians. Colossians 1.12 says this. It says, who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So the Father qualified us. So you see, something has already been done for the saints. That God has qualified us. That means he made us capable, able, suitable, and fit for the kingdom of God. God made us fit to share in the inheritance through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And why did he do that? Because we have no fitness. We never could have done this on our own. None of us are fit for salvation. None of us can enter the kingdom of God without going through the door to the kingdom. Jesus Christ, right? So there is definitely an allusion to the Old Testament, again, concerning inheritance of the ancient Israel. When they entered the promised land, each Israelite had an inheritance. Go get it, he said. An inheritance is something allotted. It's something assigned, something conferred by right position or relationship. It is not won by one's own effort, else it is not an inheritance at all. An inheritance goes to those who are in the family. So who can claim this inheritance? All bond servants of Jesus Christ. And that's the Lord says, when you're in that circumstance, look to the reward. It's nothing wrong to have a reward and to look to it and to desire it. So our inheritance is salvation. This is what we inherit. It, was, it is what God gives us. It is what we partace, participate in with all the saints, but our inheritance is also the kingdom of God. And brethren, salva- salvation is so grand, we ought to wrap our minds around what we have as chosen in Christ Jesus. A persecuted slave Christian may not have very much while living as an alien and a stranger in this world. So we have to be reminded from time to time about the magnitude of our inheritance. And I think that who does this in a masterful way is the Apostle Peter. In chapter 1, he says to us that we have a sure inheritance that flows out of our salvation. And this is what he says. He says several things about it. In 1 Peter 1, 4, he says, your inheritance, first of all, it's imperishable. It's wonderful to obtain inheritance which is imperishable. That means there's no destructive force like a moth or rust or thieves or any corrosive thing that can destroy it. He also says, secondly, in verse number 4, that it's undefiled, it's pure, to obtain inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled. Nothing can stain it or make it dirty or impure whatsoever. So God ensures us our inheritance will be free from death and decay. God ensures us that our inheritance will be free from uncleanness and moral and spiritual impurity. And also, Peter says this in verse 4 of chapter 1. He says it's certain. It's a inheritance that will not fade away it cannot be it cannot wither it cannot be old or worn it will never be lost it will never lose its vibrancy and its delight that God assures us our inheritance will be free from the ravages of time whatever time can do to you it doesn't matter it doesn't change your inheritance our great God of mercy ensures his children of the eternal validity of our inheritance, that it will never be polluted, it will never be subject to decay, it will never be destroyed. And you hear people say, well, that sounds too good to be true. 
And you know what they say, if it sounds good to be true, it's probably not true, right? Well, that is true most of the time. But in this case, something that sounds good to be true, yet it is true. Because it is backed by the character and the promise and the power of God. That's why it's true. Matter of fact, Peter says three other things about it. He says, number one, it's reserved in heaven. To obtain an inheritance which was imparable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven. That means it is guarded in an eternal place. Actually, the word there was it's a military verb. It's a military metaphor, refers to a fortress with strong walls being guarded by a battalion of soldiers. It also says there it's guarded by God, who are protected by the power of God. This is the power only that God and the Godhead shares. God is the only one who guards and keeps our inheritance for us. God is the guardian who keeps it safe for us and keeps us safe to receive it in its fullness. And also it says in Peter, it's not far off. It says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Everything is ready, brethren. Everything is ready and complete for full salvation to be revealed at any moment. Our eternal salvation will be made visible to all of us. The people of the world, the people without Christ, have no inheritance waiting for them at the end of their existence on earth. But bond slaves in Jesus Christ are promised this inheritance. I don't know about you, but in the midst of all that, it's encouraging to hear that coming from the Lord himself. And then there's a last thing back in Colossians that's connected to this imperative of employees, and it's Christ's bond slaves have an impartial judge. Colossians 3.25, listen to what it says there. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and without partiality. Now, I can say it like this. No one's getting away with anything. And in this case, who are those who do wrong? Well, it could be those slaves of Christ who wronged their masters. Now, I'm going to get into it a little bit, not today, though. But if you, one of the reasons why Paul is writing Colossians, because he has a slave with him. Right? Onesimus. What did Onesimus do? He ran away from his master. But when he ran away from his master, he ended up getting saved because Paul witnessed to him. And Paul's now bringing Onesimus back to his master. Right? And so that's why that he includes this section in Colossians. He wants to make sure that everybody knows it's not just about Onesimus and his being wrong, wronging his master, but now it's about when he gets saved, he's coming back and making it right with his master, his earthly master, because he already made it right with his heavenly master. See, he's getting to that. Now, if I read from you to, uh, from Philemon, where the book is written, it says, no longer a slave, but more than a slave. Paul's saying that uh, Onesimus is no longer a slave, but more than a slave. He's a beloved brother. That's what he says there. But I have no time for that this morning. Second thing would be the masters of Christ who have abused their authority and have not treated their employees with uh, justice and fairness. That the, the master is responsible to, the Christian master. And it could mean also in general, it may include the wrongdoers that have committed the list of Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, and 8 through 9, where it talks about uh, abusing the body in immorality and in impurity and passion, evil desire and greed, and that amounts to idolatry and so on and so forth. In that, it could mean all those categories, and I believe it does. In any case, everyone must be responsible for their own actions under the authority of Christ. 
Every Christian will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for their life. Do you know that, Christian? You won't be judged for your sin. To condemn you, you will be judged for your works. You will be judged for your works. Slave and master stand on level ground before this impartial judge, this discerning judge, to answer to their conduct. And the judge is none other than Jesus Christ. None other than Jesus Christ. So how are you doing in this area? As a bond slave, are you the employee that you ought to be to your employer? Or if you're an employer, are you what you ought to be to those who are employed by you? Because if you look at chapter 4, verse number 1, which I won't spend a lot of time on, notice what it says there. It says, Master, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So the, the master, you know, could you, abuse his authority very, very easily. And he can do it in a very simple way that... The slave has no recourse to be able to refute what the master's doing. And the Lord says to the master, you better watch out how you do it because you will be judged too. So in other words, nobody's getting away. Earthly masters are reminded that they have a master in heaven, which they are responsible to. So that they are to be bosses that treat their employees rightly. That Christian masters are to view themselves as undermasters with the master Jesus Christ as the one they submit to and wholeheartedly serve. So masters are responsible to a higher master, master who will show no favoritism. Christian slaves, Christian masters, employees, employers serve the same Lord if they are a Christian. So are you submitting to the lot that the Lord has placed you in today? And he placed you there to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That you are willingly obeying. That you have an attitude that's single and sincere before God. And that you are a hard worker. Whether you, ever, whether you ever get complimented for that hard work or get any kind of benefits for that hard work, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about living before the Lord, even if you never get any of that. And maybe you're the hardest worker on your job, but never get noticed because you're a Christian. I can say it this way. We Christians are to live as third-class citizens. Now, there's a little story that goes with that. In the days of the stagecoach, a man looked, undertook a journey, and he was informed that there were first-class, second-class, and third-class passengers. However, all the seats on the coach looked alike to him, so he purchased a third-class ticket, which was a cheaper ticket, all went well for a time, and the man was congratulating himself upon having saved some money. Presently, they came to the foot of a steep hill. When the driver stopped the horses and shouted, first-class passengers, stay in your seats. Second-class passengers, get out and walk. Third-class passengers, get out and push. <laughs> See, we need kingdom workers that want to be third-class passengers and are fine with it. Those who will push First-class passengers do nothing. They'll sit there. The second-class passengers, they walk away from the real work. And the third-class passengers, who are willing to bear the burden and the heat of the day, are the ones we need, right? 
work for the night is coming when no one can work. We need workers in the kingdom of God. Are not willing for not willing to be noticed or willing to have rank or willing to be praised. Just workers. What do you want me to do? I, I'm willing to do it. That's what we want. A bunch of serve bond servants working together, right? Take off your rank. You know, my, my son is, uh, is he's in Force Recon, and they're, they're small units. When they get together, they, they don't wear any rank because they all, they, they're in a place where they don't have to do that. They just want to make sure the other person knows their job well enough to keep them alive. See, that's what we ought to do. Do we know our job as Christians well enough to be able to serve the Lord uh, in this way that he's talking about this so we honor him and adorn the gospel, whether we're working on our job and the, or we're coming to the service of the Lord and doing work in the church? It, it's the same. We can't be sitting down, having our arms folded and say, let somebody else do it. We need you to do it. Amen? Just like Brother was... was um, Mark Twomley was talking about this morning in Sunday school, which you ought to be going to if you don't go there, because you, you need to know what's, what's going on, right? The fundamentals of the faith. And he's been talking about spiritual gifts and, uh, and using that gift in the body, because you, I need your gift, you need my gift, and so we work together and we build the body strong and healthy, right? But if you're not using your gift, you're kind of like the first-class passenger, Third-class passengers are using their gifts. That's what we need in the body of Christ. So I pray this morning as we think of those things that we would really consider our own life, our own situation that we find ourselves, and thank God for what he's given to us. And if we have work, praise him for it, right? Because some people don't have work. And if he's given you work, have the attitude that is going to adorn the gospel on your job. Amen? 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 That was like, oh me, not amen. <laughs>